Hey, before we get into this episode, I've got a favor to ask of you. We're starting a new segment on In Context called Ask Dr. E, and I've got a promo that I want you to listen to, so check it out. Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Michael Easley. Is not available. At the tone, please record your message. When you've finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Hey, Dad. Tana. Hey, okay, I've been thinking about in context, and I had an idea that I want to run past you. So, you know how all of my friends, lots of your friends, love to pick your brain about, like, random theological questions or wondering what a Bible verse means? Okay, what if we tried a call-in show where our listeners can actually call in and leave you a voicemail with their questions. And then we'll play their questions and you can answer them in the studio. And I don't know, you know how your students at Moody Bible Institute used to call you Dr. E? Maybe we call it like, Ask Dr. E. Okay, I don't know, think about it, get back to me, bye. Okay friends, now is your chance. How many times have you been reading in your Bible and thought, what on earth does that mean? Or maybe you've grappled with some theological concepts like predestination, the Trinity, or how do slaves, women, and homosexuality change from Old Testament to New Testament today? Or I don't know, but whatever it is that you've been pondering, maybe you've thought, I wish I could ask Michael Easley what he thinks about this. Well, now is the time you can ask Dr. E. Seriously, call us. Call us at 615 281-9694. Next time you're reading your Bible in the morning, I don't care if it's 5 a.m., call us and leave a voicemail. This is a phone line set up specifically for this. A human is not going to answer your call. You are not going to wake anyone up day or night. A voicemail will pick up. So next time you're wondering, what does this mean? Big question, small question. We want to hear it. 615-281-9694. Call us, leave a voicemail, and Michael will answer your question on the show. And if you're just too shy to call, you can always send us an email at question at michaelincontext.com. But seriously, call us, 615-281-9694. I think this is going to be a blast, but we need your help. You've got to call in with your questions. Save it in your phone, write it on a sticky note, and keep it in your Bible. Ask Dr. E. 615-281-9694. Michael Easley. Is available. At the tone, please record your message. How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the Word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's Word and apply it to your life. In Context. First Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, 
exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This chapter is interesting because as Peter winds down this very short letter, he covers a lot of ground. I hope as we've gone through 1 Peter, maybe you've grown in appreciation a little bit for who this apostle, elder statesman is. Uh, when he talks in this last chapter to the elders, you'll notice he exhorts them. That word is another one of those Bible words in my estimation. It means everything, therefore it means nothing. We just don't know what it means. It literally means to come alongside someone. It's not like the parakaleo, the Holy Spirit who comes alongside. A little different word. But the idea is you come alongside, you're putting your arm around someone, and you're encouraging verbally, you're exhorting them. Now the word for elders, this target group he narrows down here, there's two words used in your New Testament. Presbyteros and episkopos. And depending on your church background, you may have heard of these. Uh, Presbyteros, if you know the Presbytery Church, they get the word presbyteros, presbyter. A presbyteros means an older person. Most of the time, in fact, let's just say 90% of the time, it refers to an older man. It can refer to older women also, but when you have this notion of an elder and an office, it's specific to the male. It's an older person and the maturity that comes with uh, wisdom and time. Episcopos, here you hear the word scopos in there, epi, scopos, episcopos, epi is over. Scopos is a scope, looking, episcopos. We bring that into English, bishop or overseer. And so churches that are episcopalian will have bishops and overseers of a diocese or other churches. So these two words, used somewhat interchangeably, the difference between episkopos and presbyteros, presbyteros is clearly an older, more mature person. Uh, 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 um, episkopos is more of a duty or a function. So you're wedding the two together. Here's an older, more mature person who oversees something. It seems to me um, this whole thing was built on the synagogue model. I can't prove that, but in my study of scripture over the years, if you go back to the the first time when Moses is told by his father-in-law to delegate authority, that model truly becomes the synagogue model. And by the first century, when the Jews have a Torah, they have to have 10 men, you have to get a hold of a Torah, then you can have a synagogue, a synagogue, and only then can you establish that group of people. And this was run by the rabbinic systems. And when the church began, of course, uh, Paul is evangelizing in the synagogues, People are coming to Christ. So the church model really patterns after the synagogue model. Acts 2, of course, happens and it blows up. There are no buildings like this. Is this home? These are home churches. And even in Peter's time, we probably don't have any large gathering halls other than maybe a compound area in a village. So the synagogue model then is a little bit of a throwback to these men that he's exhorting. Now, there's three ways Peter describes himself, and this is often missed. He's exhorting the elders, and then he, look, he says, as your fellow elder. This word is found only here in the Bible. Like Paul sometimes, we might say, does a mashup and makes a word. Uh, Peter does that on occasion. And it's just two Greek words he sticks together, but it's only here. And what's important about it, I would argue, is he, he doesn't call himself an apostle here. Paul often calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. He leads with that, a servant, a doulos of Jesus Christ. 
Peter says, I'm going to talk to you as a fellow elder, speaking to them as a, as a friend. You can imagine someone, uh, the chief of surgery, coming in and talking to first-year residents. I want to talk to you as a first-year resident. Or the principal of a school coming into the first you know, time a teacher's going through orientation. I want to talk to you as a, as a first semester, first teacher. This, this is uncommon. He's an elder statesman. He saw Christ. He performed miracles like Christ did. He said, let me talk to you like a fellow elder. But his experience is one that's going to be uh, rich. Secondly, he says, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And this probably is a double entendre. Peter was with Christ, but he denied Christ. Uh, he would be aware of the mocking the spitting, the beating, the crucifixion. He was at hand when this is happening, uh, unlike those he's writing. But there's also this idea of the word witness, and this most of you know as the word martyrion, where we bring in the English martyr. Martyrion is the idea of one who tells what he's seen or heard, but it becomes martyrdom when we kill a person for what he or she has seen and heard, and when they talk about that. Stephen, of course, is often uh, identified as the first martyr in our New Testament. So he's a partaker, thirdly, a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. A, a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. This is future. Um, he partook of the glory in Second Peter chapter 1. You read about the transfiguration that Peter was witness to. And so... He says, I've seen a little bit of that, but there's one that is to come. And you remember the beloved comment he makes with, you know, let's build three booths. You know, it's, uh, to me, Peter, is, is he says things and asks things that everybody would say or ask but doesn't have the courage. We make fun of him, but I'm so glad he said and asked the things he said because otherwise we wouldn't have had the insight, right? So, I mean, it's like they're all blown away by this transfiguration. Peter, having nothing to say, says something. Let's build three booths. Let's stay here for a while. I like this. This is good. And, of course, the transfiguration changes. But he's been a partaker of that glory. He's had a little taste of it. Peter doesn't appeal as an apostle. He appeals as a fellow elder, a fellow sufferer, and one who's witnessed a little bit of the glory of Christ. And then his push with these three explanations of himself is shepherd the flock. The only time this occurs in the Bible other than here, is poignant. It's John chapter 21, 16. He, Jesus, said to him again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. Full circle. Here's the denier, three times denied. The restoration of Peter. When you go to Israel, we take you to a site called Peter's Primacy. Probably wasn't the literal place, but it's a good idea of what it might have been like. And the Catholics built a church there called the Peter, Primacy of Peter's Church. A little knoll, a little area of rock that goes out on the Sea of Galilee. And maybe that's where Jesus had the little campfire going, the charcoal fish ready. And that's where he restores Peter uh, by the three questions, the three denials, the three questions. But think of the poignancy of Peter years later writing, you shepherd the flock. What did Jesus do to restore me to ministry? Three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Tend my lambs. Even if you shepherd my flock. And this is the message that he hands off. So the, you see this humility factor of, of the apostles saying, I, I know what it's like. Shepherd my flock. Shepherd the flock of God. 
How to shepherd then in verses two and three. This is a very brief summary of the idea of eldering. Shepherding in the first century was as common of a language form as we would talk about a traffic pattern or uh, you know, working on your computer or your internet going down or call, calling your internet service provider and having a hassle with them. I mean, this is common. Everybody understands what it means to shepherd the flock of God. And the idea of shepherding was very common. He uses some interesting language, exercising oversight. And this elevates the office of the elder. Uh, you can shepherd by both prevention and defense. Uh, but here he says you need to exercise. The idea is you've got to be engaged in oversight. And this modifier, the way I'm reading it, is first a negative and then a positive. He's going to give three modifiers. Number one, exercise oversight. And then he's going to say not under compulsion. We've all had managers in the real world and leaders who, Peter Principal maybe, they get to a point or they don't like part of their job and they just got to do it. And they're just the most joyful people to be around, right? Not under compulsion, but voluntarily. There's no dread, no reluctance, no aggrandizement. It's not about me. It's a willingness to do this. Um, are we willing to say, I'll jump into that mud puddle? When we were in uh, Northern Virginia, sending out with the church in Washington, D.C. area, uh, we had a very large elder board. We had 50 elders. It had to be unanimous. It was quite fun. And... Um, on many occasions, we'd have, a, let's just call it a, a problem child, someone that, you know, they had gone through counseling, they had, you know, a little bit of an irritation, sort of a benign nuisance, but they were people that, you know, you want to love them, be kind to them, but they're difficult. And invariably, it would come up through a counselor or come up through some channel, and it would come to the elder meeting and say, we've got some folks, we need some, we need some TLC. Who will volunteer? And Ralph Weitz was one of these elders. Every time they I'll go. I'll go, and another one would jump on. Every single time, he was willing to get up and, and roll his sleeves up, roll his pant legs up, go and get in the mud puddle, and he was patient and kind and loving. To me, that's a great guy who wasn't doing it under compulsion, but voluntarily. We, we knew ahead of time, oh, that's so-and-so. Oh, everybody knows them. So you kind of pretend you don't see each other in the parking lot. You know those people? Well, they are out there. Uh, he would always say, let me go help. Secondly, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Now, I love the king's English here, not for filthy lucre, but of ready mind. Ministry is not about gain. It never has been, never should be. Local elders, churches, pastors, teachers, it shouldn't be about the amount of money. It should be about the idea of an eagerly serving the flock of God. These are the people for whom Jesus died. How can you put a price on it? How can you put a price on it? Yes, Paul will instruct that they should be worthy of double honor. This isn't just, you know, the old school model of you keep them poor, we'll keep them humble kind of thing. It's the idea of, no, they're worthy of it, but that's not the motivation. One of my professors used to warn us several times a semester, you think you're going to make money in ministry? Have your head examined. Go become an engineer. Go become a doctor. Go become a, you know, do something else. Don't go into ministry for money. You're crazy. It's like going into social work. You don't do that for money. You do it because you care about people. You have a different motivation. Even though most church leaders are not in it for financial gain, uh, power can become just as intoxicating as money. People like positions. I've always been enamored with people who love to serve on boards. I don't like to serve on boards. 
I've been on and off so many boards to quote one of my profs. I've been on so many boards, I'm bored to death. I didn't like my own board. I mean, I love the people, but it's like a board meeting. The whole notion of it is we've got to accomplish stuff. Everybody has different agendas. You know, there's the meeting before the meeting, the meeting, the meeting after the meeting. Ah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, that's not ministry. The ministry is shepherding the flock of God with eagerness. Thirdly, not as yet lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And this is so contra the world's view of leadership today. Now, I will say in the last decade, there's been more of a move to, to team and you know organic leadership and this type of right on and off the bus. End of the day, somebody's got to lead it. It can't happen by groupthink. But I find it striking in the first century, uh, Peter's warning them, you don't lord your position over the flock. It's one of those things, you don't tell people not to do something they aren't doing. It's, you, know, you don't say a negative command if they're not engaged in that. So the tendency was, as all human power is, you can be an elder and you can wear it. The Pharisees and scribes sure liked it. Where Jesus mocks him about you, 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 in the seat of play, the you, you, the robes, the tassels, all that type of stuff. You come in with pretense, but that's not how you're going to shepherd my people. No heavy-handedness in this relationship. The word "model" and "example" is very interesting, depending on on your English language. Is um, example to the flock. When we had again back in Virginia, we had a very long process of how to select elders. It was incredibly lengthy. And it would come through months of vetting and interviews. And then they would come to councils. And then they would go actually visit the husband and wife as much as possible without getting into trouble politically. They'd want to go see where the guy worked. What kind of reputation does he have? I mean, they did a, a thorough vetting. And when the person finally came to the full board for a recommendation, uh, the, the group obviously was, we're going to make you know Joe an elder. So they're going to put on the, the best uh, PR, uh, here's his resume thing. And uh, it would go around, and I was the senior pastor of this large board. I just had one vote in that meeting, though. And I would give this same speech every cycle because I didn't always know these people with that large of a group. And I would say, listen, gentlemen, remember one thing, all the vetting aside, when you make him an elder, you stamp the word example on his head. And you're telling that church, be like him. Be like his marriage. Be like his parenting. Not that they're perfect because there are no perfect people, but are, are they a good husband? Are they a good provider? Are they the kind of guy you'd say, hey, they're parenting my kids well. I mean, are, are they someone you would go to? Because that's what shepherding requires. And this passage always stands out at me. You represent Christ and his church. Biblically speaking, the office of elder is a more important office than anything on the planet. It's more important than who sits in the White House. It's more important than who sits as a president of an organization. It's more important than the CEO of the most you know, wealthy corporation in the world because it represents Christ. Yes, elders are human. We grant them that. But there's a big difference between one who shepherds the flock of God. With that tall order, uh, what would motivate anyone to want to do this and I always like the idea of a healthy reluctance. This is just common sense. It may not be true. Obviously, we're to aspire to the office of elder, but there ought to be a little healthy, well, boy, is this really what God wants me to do? Well, the reward is then the chief shepherd will grant them an unfading crown of glory. And this is a, a much debated subject 
that we can't get into the weeds on. But the idea is, is the motivation for doing this the reward or is the fact that if you do this well, God's going to reward you? Which seems to make more sense to me. Um, this awaits the godly servant. It isn't the worldly view of an award or reward. In fact, the worldly reward for being an elder typically is you uh, are either uh, serve your term and you go quietly away <laughs> or you get reelected however the church government works. First um, Peter 5, 5, we move then to the example of humility. And it's an interesting transition, but it makes perfect sense as you see what Peter's doing. You younger men likewise be subject to elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So now we move to this example of humility in verses 5 to 7. Peter has addressed the elders in the first five, four verses, and now he's expanding it to a larger audience. So the audience got to hear the inside shepherd the flock of God. And now he said, now the rest of you, and he addresses this larger audience beginning with younger men. Some of your English Bibles drop the masculine pro down and just say younger. And there's some reasons for that. Um, I think younger men is more consistent with the grammar because there is a pronoun there that's a plural, pro, uh, a plural pronoun that has to attach to something. So it's, it's younger men. So the context to me is from the Instruction to the elders and now targeting young men. Now, this is interesting because if you look at 1 Timothy and you know Paul's writing, he talks about young men. Those of you who have been around the block a little bit, young men can be know-it-alls. Young men can be upstarts. Fresh out of college, fresh out of graduation, fresh out of master's, they can know everything. And us old guys, we're just a bunch of idiots. I don't think personality has changed 3,000 years. Young men knew everything. They tend to you know, look at older men differently. Um, so I think younger men fits well. And then more importantly, I, the argument I would push to say that is in the latter part of verse 5, and all of you. So he's talking to younger men specifically as the point of the spirit, but, but everybody listen to this. So I think it's a beautiful stroke and not to minimize it. And a lot of the stuff just sort of as a sidebar, a lot of the change in translations is really because everybody's walking on thin ice with gender. They don't want to use a he and her, and they, they don't want to say brethren. They want to say brothers and sisters. And I'm not against all that, but there, there's a step away that gets too far. And sometimes when you drop these pronouns, I think you miss some of the color of what's going on. And this one being you young guys, you upstarts, and then all of you. So he still covers all his bases without being as politically correct as we might want to be in this culture. It's nothing new. Again, 1 Timothy 5, Titus 2 are the same song and dance. The young disrespect the old, the old dismiss the young, and too much is lost in the middle. This is nothing new. So now there's a call for humility. All of you, a willingness to serve others, not merely yourself. I've shared this with you many times. You've heard it. It's a bit of a broken record. Um, and I would, I would encourage you to do this. When you wake up tomorrow morning, uh, after, you know, whatever the first thought in your head is, I don't know if it's coffee or shower or whatever the first thought in your head is, but uh, a good first thought would be, am I going to serve myself or my Savior before your feet hit the floor? You and I get to make that choice every single morning. 
That doesn't mean my whole day can be 100% serving Christ. I don't think it's possible. I think we're, we get horizontal real quickly. But it, to me, it, and I, I'm not trying to say I'm super spiritual because I'm not. It pops into my head every morning. Michael, you're going to serve yourself or your Savior. And candidly, it's an arm wrestle sometimes. Because sometimes I just want to serve myself. Sometimes I like to just be a monk and not deal with anything. I'd serve myself or serve my Savior. And the beauty of this is in the body of Christ, every one of us has got gifting, skills, and talents that we can serve him and other people. But you got to make the choice, I'm going to do that and not merely serve my own selfish wants and needs. It doesn't mean we're, we're martyrion or martyrs, but it does calibrate am I willing to serve other people. Well, this does remove... Uh, does this remove you know, the liberty we might have? You know, Gosh, I can do whatever I want. I'm not legalistic. I'm not licentiousness, but I, ha- I can live in liberty. I get to choose, sure, but you also get to choose to do good. You get to choose to obey. It might interest you um, that prior to Christ, th- think about this from language, prior to Christ, the noun for humility was never found in any extra-biblical literature. So if you read the low classics, the Greek classics that are prior to New Testament time, there's nothing, there's no extra biblical Greek language where the word humility was used until it's introduced in the personal work of Christ. Josephus, when he translated it, he translated it cowardice. So language takes on meaning by way of usage. How words are used or how they get meanings. A wooden reading of the proverb would be something like this. God, those who are proud, arranges like a battle against them. He gives grace to the humble. It's a neat parallel. It's simple in, in, your, in your Bible. He's opposed to the proud, but, but, parentheses, God gives grace to the humble. If you want to play with it, some of you BSFers and precept and Bible study geeks, you might even find a chiasm going on in here. A little bit hard to get to, but God opposed the proud. God gives grace to the humble. God actively responds to humble people. Do you hear that? He act, That's what the proverb says. He's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humility uh, puts you and me in a posture for God to use. Humility puts you and me in a posture for God to bless. It doesn't, we, we never puppeteer God. You know, by doing this or that, God then says, okay, I'll do this for you. That's if-then theology. If I do this, then God will bless me with that. Forget that nonsense. But the idea here is that it's an active humility. I won't say motivates God, but God responds to that. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. So many illustrations we could use, whether it's Joseph. Um, some versions say, clothe yourself. That's actually a pretty good, vivid description used in John 13. When, when Jesus comes in and they toss their garments on the animal, uh, the idea of being clothed with something, it was repeatedly taught by Christ. It's 180 degrees countercultural, self-promoting, your vision. I keep talking about horizontal Christianity. I, me, my. This culture, I mean, I don't mean just Middle Tennessee, our culture as Christians is, is just shot through with I, me, my Christianity. And here he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you at the proper time. Verse 7, casting all your anxiety on him because he 
cares for you. One of the sweetest verses in First Peter, um, many of us uh, 20, 30 years ago sang a little chorus, I cast all my cares upon you, I lay all my burdens down at your feet. Uh, I think Hannah was, I don't know if she was two or four, but she, that was the first song she sang, a solo in the little church we were in in Grand Prairie, Texas, of course. Her mom and I were wrecking the... I cast all my cares upon you. Sweet idea. The idea of submission and humility creates anxiety. That's the context. If you're going to submit yourself to other authority, if you're going to be uh, not proud but humble, it can create some anxiety and unknown. If I submit myself, what's going to happen to me? Anticipating that anxiety, God's word gives us the remedy right away. Cast your anxiety on him. Toss it on him. Again, same in Luke 19. They threw their coats on the cult. You toss it on him. It's a good picture. It's not like just set it down or sort of reluctantly give it away. It's like get rid, pitch it out, throw it away, cast your anxiety on him because he cares. When I don't know when you're a little boy or girl, what type of relationship you have with your father or mother, or a lot of us came from some pretty complicated homes, but. I hope there was some parental uh, person in your experience that you could run to. I hope there was someone that took your pain away. Um, you know, I, having three daughters and one son, uh, two of my girls, um, for the most part, you know, mom and dad, they were the refuge. They could make things right. And there's something sweet about that. There's a place you can go to that's there. I remember even though um, I was in college, my dad had a bunch of TIAs, and uh, he was in uh, uh, hospital for about three or four days, intubated, didn't know if he was going to make it out. And uh, in God's kindness, he did. He didn't remember anything for about five days. He didn't know what had happened to him. But I remember how it rocked my world that my dad could die. I mean, because as a, you know, what are, what are you in college, 19? I didn't have any concept that dad was ever going to die. Was, I mean, yeah, I knew it was out there, but you're a teenager. What do you know? It rocked my world. Just the idea physically, he, emotionally, he wasn't there. It was very strange. When uh, my, one of my mentors died, Floyd Sharp, in 2000, I remember just feeling like this vacuum just sucked my soul going, I can't talk to my mentor anymore. I can't pick up the phone or go see him anymore. He's gone. And those memories, to me, remind me of, you, you put your anxiety on him you don't have to call a friend. You don't have to depend. But that emotional connection with that parent or father or mother who always was there for you is, to me, it's a good illustration that Christ loves you more, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. When I come across these passages, I do a lot of reflecting. Do I really understand that he cares about me? Do you? We're so stinking busy. Most of us. We're up early, we're up late, we're traveling, we're go. You know, we got a lot, lot of things to do. If you've got family, if you've got children, grandchildren, if you're you know, facing retirement, whatever it is, if you've got a busy practice, if you've got a busy fill in the blank, it's you go, 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 go. And in the middle of that, you know, on a good day we feel good, on a bad day not so much. A friend of mine used to say he couldn't be an Arminian because on a good day he was saved, on a bad day who knew? Theology humor, sorry. Um, he cares about you. He cares about you when you're sick. 
when you're single, when you're fertile, when you're lonely, when your kids are breaking your heart, when work stinks, when you don't like the person in the White House, whatever your thing is, he cares about you. Why do you want to carry your own anxiety around? It's a good reminder. He's not distant nor disinterested. He cares. And the truth of the matter is he cares more than any human being is capable of caring. And that's where we miss out. Well, faithful living does not exempt us from conflict. Verse 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering which are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Sober is just well-balanced or self-controlled. Alert is a term used by Jesus a number of times in the gospel. It's quite an interesting study because typically it's telling them, stay awake, pay attention, keep alert, because why? Our tendency is to drift off, right? Uh, here we have this adversary, the devil, the diablos in Greek, whose desire is to devour. He's a liar. He's a slanderer. He's an accuser of the brethren. I can't prove it uh, by grammar, verse, and text, but my sense in studying the accuser is that he never stops accusing you and me before Christ. Peter says he prowls like a roaring lion. It's an interesting series of words. Now, prowling to me, the best image of that today would be trolling, how people troll on the internet. He trolls on the internet. He never stops trolling. He roars, and a lion's roar actually has been identified into like, Five or six primary roars with sub-roars. Some of the roars are to paralyze the prey. Some are to delineate their area, their pride. It's a fascinating. Some of them are to coordinate things. Um, but you prowl uh, to put your prey on alert so they run away? No. And a lion knows that because he wants to devour you. He's bent on tempting you and me. And, of course, Peter's injunction is to essentially resist and stand firm. Let's look at a number of lessons, and we'll tie up the rest of the verses. First of all, um, when it comes to any church, and this is generic for any church we attend, we go to, you can have the best polity and the wrong people and have a disaster and have the best people and the worst polity and have a good church. There are churches that have uh, congregational votes, churches that have um, elder-run churches, staff-run churches, CEO churches. If you're familiar with that way the Baptist church works, typically some of us come Baptist backgrounds. Um, they can be good, bad, and different polities, the way you run a church. If you have the wrong people, it doesn't matter what on, what's on paper. But if you have good people, you'll have a good organization. And that, I think, is what shepherding the flock is all about. Um, it's, it's time consuming. It's not for everyone. Uh, only a few people should ever aspire to the office of elder. Uh, to be gentle, firm, loving, and kind, and to do it without affecting your view of God's people in general is, is an artful, a spiritual journey for a person to do that. Secondly, 
this applies really to any leadership role of any kind. Uh, when, when we get in leadership, there's all sorts of ways we analyze it. Peter Drucker said you can meet or you can work. Now, I, I think that's a truism, but you do have to meet sometimes to work. You can't not meet. A friend of mine who works in an engineering company, and he said their office has gone to stand-up meetings. They don't sit at a boardroom bring donuts in and have PowerPoints anymore. They stand up. They have to try to do a 20-minute stand-up meeting because you waste so much time pre-meeting, meeting, post-meeting. Um, ministry, whether it's leadership as a believer, uh, you, can be, you can use all these, these you know, shepherding and caring and loving and being concerned about these people. Um, I've shared with you before a friend of mine who was over about 350 engineers, and I asked him as a, as, you know, as a lead project manager for this program, I said, how much of your time is spent with the, the actual product and the program? And he goes, 15%. The rest of it's people problems. It's engineers who won't play well with each other. It's people that you know, are, are petulant or difficult or the know-it-all who controls the information. He goes, engineers are an interesting bunch. And so you're trying to get them on the same page was next to impossible to fix you know, this particular thing. And shepherding the flock is, applies pretty well. Uh, Drucker also said most people complain about a change because they weren't consulted before. Which, again, a lot of people learn with this team concept. You, you, you talk about these things. You vet it. You discuss it. What would happen if? These are the five things we're thinking about. Sometimes people have better ideas than we do. But leadership can still be artful in the fact that these are God's people, not yours. You can love the people you work with. Um, a subset lesson to this is one uh, some of us will understand immediately. I'm a bit of a Sir Ernest Shackleton buff. If you don't know the story of the endurance, it's a, it's a sinkhole for me. I, I got into it very, very deeply. But uh, the voyage of the endurance was the attempt to uh, discover the South Pole. And it's a very, very long story with lots of books on it. But Shackleton is attributed with saying loneliness is the penalty of leadership. Loneliness is the penalty of leadership. Because at some point when you lead, uh, you don't have any friends. Ask any academic dean. When he or she was a faculty member, it was a club. When you become a dean, they hate your guts. When you become a provost, everybody hates your guts, even the president you serve. It's a club, so to speak. If you're a teacher, if you're a leader, if you're managing other people, there's going to be a loneliness to that leadership. Um, and, and I would simply say, for the Christian, there's an exquisite loneliness. Because if you're serving Christ as you're in your group as an educator, as a mom, as a dad, as a business owner, as an employee, as a in the medical profession, um, there are going to be towers of leadership where you're involved where they're not going to like your decisions. And there's an exquisite nature to that. To me, it's where you lean into your walk with Christ. And so when I read the eldering and shepherding passages, it's a lot of encouragement to me. What I did for all my 37-some years in that role was I always pursued godly mentors outside of my primary sphere who were ahead of me because nothing's new. That's vanity, thinking your problem's new. And so there's someone who's already been there, done that. They're ahead of you. They can be an encouragement to you. Um, I think I'm a number four here. Ask Christ to help you become humble. This passage speaks about humility in a cursory way. 
Um, again, I know I repeat myself, forgive me. I was privileged to attend Ken Taylor's funeral. Ken Taylor wrote the Living Bible. Um, and Ken Taylor was a remarkable man, and he was known like he was like the most humble man you'd ever meet. And uh, one of the men who gave a eulogy at his funeral, I believe it was the College Church of Wheaton, if memory serves. It was one of the churches in Wheaton. But um, this person gave a eulogy, and they said um, Ken was walking out of the church after a Sunday school class, and he heard some people whispering, that's Ken Taylor. He's like the most humble person on the planet. And Ken Taylor related the story to his friend. You know, when I hear how humble I am, it makes me proud. How's your humility quotient? For me, I, I can't measure yours. Do you listen well? Do I have to talk all the time? You know, uh, for those of us who are verbal, verbal processors, the only time it really smacks you hard is when you're around someone else who's more verbal. If you don't know what I'm talking about, good. But if, if you're a verbal person and you're around someone who never takes a breath, um, I go home and say, Cindy, am I like that person? Do I talk that much? And she laughs. Um, but when you talk all the time, it's me, myself, and I, and I'm controlling and keeping the thing at bay. Compared to a person there who says anything, that can be a false humility. And there's always a tipping point in all these things. Are, are you aware that we are by nature selfish? Our default mechanism is probably selfish. Humility means I've got to think a little less of me and a little more of others. Do you ask questions about them? How their day is, how their classes are, how their job is, how their whatever, fill in the blank. Um, I had to learn many, many years ago to ask people questions because not everybody's going to talk just in a, in a room. I was uh, a friend of mine doing a small group, and he was had a little code of conduct on his little email he sent out. And uh, they go to dinner, and they put all their phones away, and only one person can talk at a time at the table. And everybody has to talk before the dinner's over. That's pretty cool. Because that way, the people that talk too much don't. And the people that don't get a chance to say something do. That'd be a simple thing you can implement the next time you go out to eat or with a group of friends. And real simply, ask God to help you with your humility. Being humble doesn't mean you're not important or successful or accomplished or a leader or have great ideas or have wisdom. Being humble just means it's not about me. Think about how many marriages would be healed if one of the two couples, one of the couples was a little more humble. How much that could you know, diffuse the argument. How many jobs when you're working with a group of people, if it was you were a little more humble than the packs? Well, I'd be glad to help. I don't know all the answers, but I'm here to serve. Five, we're not called to fight Satan. Again, in the last two, three decades, there's been a lot of unfortunate literature, much of it in that falls in the fiction category, about angels and demons and so forth. And I'm not anti-fiction by any stretch, but when, when fiction is theologically in error, it makes me upset. And when we talk about Satan and the ways the pop culture and fictitious culture talk about him, we're concocting uh, an image of a guy that may or may not be accurate. What we do know from him about the scripture is that he is a deceiver. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is a liar from the beginning. And his job is to distract and destroy and tempt you and me. Um, he can tempt us, but he can't make us. I learned years ago the axiom, whenever you talk about Satan, even now, you unwittingly open 
a door to a smarter, more shrewd adversary. So, of course, in cultures where they're very spirit-oriented, we have friends that were missionaries in the Papua New Guinea region, and, of course, there was all types of, quote, satanic activity that went on. No explanation of demonic activity. sounds ludicrous to talk about that today, but these missionaries were just as, you know, orthodox as you and me, but weird stuff happens. And their sense was this culture had long ago opened themselves up to the idea that spirits exist and pantheism and so forth and so on. And so when these things happen, two and two is four to them. The West is, we're sort of, you know, intellectually superior. We don't attribute stuff to Satan. Both can be egregious over, you know, stepping the bounds. But I find it striking where people are going to pray against the devil and they're going to do this and do that and all this kind of stuff. Uh, Scripture says to stand firm. Scripture says resist temptation. Scripture says standing in Christ is the way to defeat Satan. Not to fight Satan, not to study his habits, not to study his behavior, not to you know, read books about Satanology and angelology, which if you want to, you can. I'm just telling you. Um, scripture says stand firm. Resist, and he'll flee. Finally, on this passage, our suffering is temporal. Peter sums up this section for a little while. For a little while. If you're in the middle of miserable, it's hard to look at a little while. Because when you're in the middle of miserable, that's all you know is miserable. Uh, I, I share the story many times about living with chronic pain, and I go back to my worst times, and I, I tell people pain has no memory. I, the women in here who have given childbirth without an epidural can tell the story about, you know, man, that was so painful, but you don't remember it. Weeks, months later, right? It's gone. If you had surgery and you recovered from it, if you were had shoulder surgery or knee or hip, I mean, it's brutal, it's miserable. And then when you get better, you might have a little ache and pain, but you don't remember the trauma that you experienced. Pain has no memory. From a theological lens, our suffering, we're in the middle of miserable, but a little while soon passes away. Christ will perfect, will complete you and me. Remember the old chorus, the things of the earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And again, most of us, I think we're in that chapter of life where we've lived long enough, he's brought you to this place. Why would you doubt? Maybe you're suffering right now. So I've got all, with family dynamics, there's always some joyful thing going on, right? I mean, if you got family, you got joyful stuff happening. If you work for a living, you got stuff happening. If you have any health issues in your life, it's a distraction. And because we're horizontal in our focus, we get all fixated. I do too on the here and now and the problem at hand. For a little while. Just a little while. Just a little while. See, I had a dear friend who um, had brain cancer, and um, he had. Uh, gamma nice treatments and they made this mesh mask on him and they would literally bolt him down to what you would if you had an MR or CAT scan a table like that but they'd put him in a harness and strap him in but they'd bolt this thing on his face and he said it, you know if you're claustrophobic you don't, you don't even listen to the story uh, and bolt him on his face and they put him in this thing to, to gamma knife the cancer in his brain and 
And he was a super spiritual guy. I mean, he self-taught Greek and Hebrew, brilliant man, taught statistics at the Air Force Academy in his last part of his Air Force career. And uh, he, he said, Michael, he said, they put me in that thing one time, and he goes, my nose, never in my life before, my nose itched so bad. I thought, and because I'm completely bolted and strapped in. Even if I said, can you take it off, it'd been like 10 minutes to get me out of there, you know. And he goes, I'm in there, and i got to be perfectly still for this gamma knife, lest they, you know, do something else to my brain. And he had a great sense of humor. But um, he said, I was just praying. He goes, Lord, Lord, will you stop this itch on my nose? And I mean, it sounds so trite. But he said, right at the time I was going to crawl out of my skin, it stopped itching. And he called it just-in-time grace. Just-in-time grace. Just-in-time grace. For a little while. For a little while. In the middle of miserable? No. But your problems and mine, just for a little while. Just for a little while. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. Thank you.